0: Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Let's talk freight. Welcome back for episode 163 of the Freight 360 Podcast. We've got a, a returning special guest with us today. It's Doug Nelson with Blue Book Services. Doug, welcome back. We're so glad to have you on again. Thanks. Yeah. It, so, hey, if you're, if you're brand new, mm-hmm. you just found us, you, you caught a great episode. We love having guests on here. But if you've been with us for a while, this is uh, the second uh, episode we're doing with Doug out of a three-part series this fall. Um, so, make sure you stay tuned for the next one coming later in the year and check out the first episode we did with Blue Book on um, marketing and credit vetting and lead generation, all that good stuff. It was last month. Um, share us with your friends. Leave us that review. We're growing. Keep sending us your questions. We've got three good ones for the end of today's episode. So um, for those of you that have not listened to the first episode, Doug is the VP of Trading Assistance at Blue Book Services. So he's a subject matter expert when it comes to a lot of the things in the fresh Food and produce industry, and as specifically how the Blue Book, uh, as an organization, how they are very impactful and a huge asset for for uh, freight brokers and motor carriers. So, um, we're going to dig in specifically today on conflict resolution. Well, I guess dispute resolution, conflict resolution is something you learn about in middle school, uh, but uh, <coughs> or should when you have disputes between shippers and brokers and carriers, a variety of reasons. Um, we're going to dig into that today because if you do anything with produce, you probably had it happen before, or even just you know, outside of produce, this stuff happens. But we're going to we're going to take a look at some examples in that realm specifically. So, um, quick little sports recap here. Uh, bills were off this past week; they were on their buy. So I've updated my tracking board behind me. It just says buy Felicia" on it. Um, coming up, we're going to be on Sunday Night Football against the Packers here in Orchard Park this weekend. Then the Steelers did not pull off the W I was hoping for against Miami. They did but, not. Uh, they, hung, they hung in there, right? It was like a one-score game. So. Yeah,
1: I mean, the offense got to put up more points if they're going to want to win a game. I, I was only able to see some of the highlights in the recap. Oh, we were texting. I, my cable was working. I was super excited. I just moved, and then it went out like two hours before the game. Yeah. And it was really kind of upsetting because, like, they're playing the Dolphins. I mean, it would have been televised anyway because it was a night game, but, like, I always kind of like, we play the Dolphins. I'm like, at least it's a game I know is going to get televised. I can watch. But, yep. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it is what it is. And, uh, Doug, your Michigan State Spartans are, uh, you said this, not me, before we hit the record button, but you said they're kind of a forgotten team this year. What's their record at?
2: Uh, They're three and four.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to think, and they're in a conference with like Michigan and Ohio State, right? So that's that's not an easy, not an easy conference to be in. No.
2: no. I mean, last year they were (laughs) eleven and two. They had uh, they had Kenneth Walker, and he was tearing it up. And I think we didn't we didn't fully appreciate just how uh, how much we were going to miss him with him pulled out of the offense.
0: That's. it's one of the things I think is so cool about college football is um the turnover of your players, right because you know these these folks only play while they're in college you know may, maybe if they're redshirted they get a fifth year um that you know if they're in school for five years, but you know NFL you get these folks that stick around and become a franchise player for ten plus years you don't get that in in college so the uh a team can drastically change from one season to the next very very easily yeah. so. Other sports news,
1: did you see the DOJ is now investigating PGA, the United States Golf Association, as well as Augusta National, and an antitrust probe.
0: <clears throat> Does that to do with the live golf thing? Yep.
1: In fact, I was reading a few articles on it this morning. Um, the one on Golf Digest like cited uh, – no, maybe it was a different one. It's, I saw the Golf Digest one up in front of me. But there was another one that like cited basically – what Tiger Woods had said is they were like, you don't really need to look any further than this to realize um, they're a monopoly. And they're basically admitting it. I mean, they're like, look, like this is the league. It's the only league you can't play for anyone else. And I'm like, go, well, that is by definition a monopoly. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think this has ever happened in any. Well, I guess what the ABA and the NBA back in the day in like the 60s and 70s was the only other time I
0: could. Yeah, but I, mean, but I think about like, look at the NFL. Like, they are not opposed to other leagues existing. You know, you've got the Canadian Football League, you've got the XFL, you have, they've, there's been a variety of other attempts at a, you know, at a uh, spring football league or whatever it was. Um, they had the American Association of Football, the AAF, a few years back that, didn't really last in even its entire first season, but um. I think it's different though. I think, you know, when you've got a
1: team sport, it's just not I just don't think it's an apples to apples comparison. I mean, I feel like because again, like they're more like contract they're not like they're not employees in the PGA. They're like subcontractors. Like they're They're not, not
0: on salary. Well, they are now, right? Aren't they on salary now? I, I don't know. Honestly, I mean, I, I haven't seen
1: anything, but I, I know that that was one of the points of contention. They're like, you know, we don't get paid if we don't win. We're not, you know, we're not getting paid if we don't, you know, make a cut. So, you know, why can't we go play in another tournament here? And to be honest, like there was VJ played last year or the year before. I think it was last year. He played in the Corn Fairy Tour. And there was a huge like hoopla over because he clearly had an advantage and crushed the field. And they were like, should have, you know – a tour player be able to play down, I guess, kind of a league. And then he stopped. I mean, that was the only other thing I can kind of think of. It's maybe in tennis. I'll follow tennis enough to be able to.
0: Me neither. Draw any comparisons? Nope. Oh, I saw uh, Tom Brady um, just really hitting the headlines. Well, first of all, he's having a terrible season. Um, but hitting the headlines in his personal <laughs> life. looks like him and Giselle maybe headed towards the uh, divorce So, I don't know. She did like an interview, I think, earlier this month um, saying she basically gave him an ultimatum like, you know, retire or we're not going to be together or something like that. So I'll say,
1: I mean, I don't really follow much celebrities or really that much sports news outside of just watching it. But I mean they made some compelling arguments why what she was saying in regards to like how many years she's basically waited for him to kind of spend time with her family. And it was like, yep. okay, you're leaving on a high note. And then it's this year. I told you this the last episode. There was a meme that went around after the, um, when they played the Steelers where he was yelling at his, you know, O-line and the, the meme just said, um, I'm I'm giving up my family for this. Wow.
0: <laughs> like- yeah. uh, wow. Well see what happens. All (coughs) right. We're gonna get into the episode here, but let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT first and then we'll hop into it.
1: Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business partners with tools that allow you to find new business partners, plus you can quickly qualify onboard new carriers. And with the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for a free month of Power Express or Truckers Edge.
0: Absolutely. All right. So, disputes and Blue Book. Let's set the stage here. All right. So, anyone that's been in brokerage for a little bit, you know, if not for a year or so, uh, has probably come across. <sighs> either a claim where you're trying to figure out who is at fault, or um, you know, there's a disagreement between either the shipper and the carrier, or shipper and broker, or broker and carrier on a variety of issues with price and who's gonna get paid what and who's paying what and all that stuff. So it can be a very delicate situation. Now put, put yourself in the shoes of a freight broker who does not want to lose a customer but also does not want to foot the bill for something that they're not responsible for. It's a very delicate situation. So like, I'll just get like a hypothetical situation. Uh, Let's say a customer- I had one yesterday, I'll
1: give you a real one. I had one that that came through this morning. So, um, Drage, it wasn't produce. So we're taking two containers from Chicago all the way out to, um, it was in Wisconsin. So it was like 200 mile transit. Um, Receiver, we've delivered there a dozen times over the past six weeks. Um, these are just normal shipments, nothing out of the ordinary, no special requirements from the receiver, nothing from my customer on the shipping side. So schedule them for, I think they were scheduled for nine and 10 o'clock yesterday morning. Um, but that much transit and drayage, that's a pretty long run. That's like a very long run to run a container out. So one driver and also by the way, now here's how it played out. So. First load, way overweight, like 47,000 pounds. So it's way overweight and the truck blows two tires on the chassis. So it's late. Second truck ends up being two hours late related to traffic. Well, I get a phone call when the first truck's late at around 930, 10 o'clock and they go, They've got a crane on site that they're paying $700 an hour for and we need to know where these trucks are. And I'm like, well, one guy's got two flat tires. I've been on the phone with them. They're fixing them now. Second guy caught in traffic leaving Chicago. He's probably going to be an hour and a half, two hours late. And you know, then it blows up from there, screaming that like the guy needed to be there on time. But I mean, you can't make the truck move any faster. You can't get him there. My customer screaming that the receiver wants them to pay the crane bill, and they're screaming at me, telling me they want me to pay for the crane expense, and they're all blaming something that nobody can control—right, traffic and a breakdown. And I think it's just a really good example of everybody thinks they're right, everybody's screaming at each other, and nobody's working towards a solution that works for anybody.
0: Well, no. One, so back to kind of what I was saying—that yours is a good example. Like, a, you know, if a customer is raising their – they're throwing the flag, basically saying, like, I'm not paying for this. It's not my fault. And then you as the broker are like, well, do I eat some of this? Because if I don't and I basically tell my customer you're responsible for it, they're not going to be my customer very uh-huh. much longer. <laughs> so that's kind of where the delicate balance is. Yeah. And um, in some situations, if your customer is just wrong and they're not treating you fairly or ethically – Um, the reality is you probably don't want to have that kind of customer in your book of business, but some people are too afraid to lose a big chunk of their, of their revenue or their profits that they will um, let themselves be, taken advantage of by a certain customer. And I've seen plenty of shippers that they, they poorly load or they poorly package and they just try to get away with it so they can try to claim the truck or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of setting the stage. This stuff does happen. Now I'm curious from Doug's perspective, from a high-level view, what role does BlueBook play in these disputes or the resolution of them?
2: Yeah, I, I guess I'd say, particularly in, in fresh produce, um, we've been we've been in this area throughout the com- the company's long history. Um, I've always published trading and transportation guidelines, uh, so. The broker's in a situation where they're anticipating a difficult call with their customer or a difficult difficult call with their the carrier they hired to try to resolve a dispute, um, it, it's, it can be a convenient source to bounce something off of a neutral third party. Um, and a lot of times, like a lot of times I'll get calls or we'll, we'll all get calls here in our trading assistance group that says, hey, I think I know the answer, but I, I wanted to run something by you. Um, and just kind of prepping for a call, and lots of times we can point to something in our in our trading or transportation guidelines that speaks to the situation, and maybe helps that conversation stay constructive and not you know turn south on you.
0: That's good. I mean, just the whole concept of having a neutral third party, I think, is extremely important because. Your interests don't lie with either a shipper or a broker or the truck. You are legitimately a, a neutral third party. So it's kind of like when anyone goes through mediation for anything, having someone that's not attached to either of the parties, um, it, it gives kind of a that just that neutral point of view. And I think that's kind of huge. Yeah, I mean, you don't have any.
1: You don't have any skin in the game except your reputation and the motivation behind the reputation is to do the right thing, right? So your motivation is directly in line with where you would want it to be, right? Because no matter how you look at the other three parties, there's always a financial motivation in there, right? Whether it's the relationship like Nate pointed out to keep the customer happy and then your carrier is upset, keep the carrier happy and the customer is upset find a happy medium where they're both a little upset and sometimes you're eating all of the loss and to be able to have somebody that has no financial skin in that transaction, I think it's extremely valuable because you have no motivation, but to tell the truth.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanna clarify something though. I, I'm pretty sure the answer is no, but does Blue Book have any authority to tell somebody that they are responsible or is it more just guidance or advice or feedback that's given?
2: Right, yeah, it's more it's more the latter. Um, okay. or you know you can even say it's entirely the latter um, it, it, we do get cited sometimes in legal articles just as far as custom and usage in the trade which sometimes when say a terms not def- defined uh, by a contract well what's reasonable and customary might control so a court could could look at our at our guidelines for that but yeah basically our um, you know we're a mediator trying to mediate bring the parties together um, if if a party's acting unreasonably, that's where our, our role as a credit rating agency might come in, or we might flag that the the claim is meritorious um, if the, if the party's not trading um, per our trading and transportation guidelines. And so that gets um, so then our membership is made aware that this firm um, you know may not may not be trading. Um, in, in a manner consistent with, with the guidelines.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, you can't go to a customer and say, hey, you mm-hmm. legally have to pay this, but you can, because you own your own credit rating, uh, you can have that reflected in your the, the Blue Book credit rating. So when somebody, whether it's a, a truck or a broker, looks at that um, in the future, they can see that reported um, Let me consistent ask you with something. what you guys <coughs> know, what happened. So, Doug, within produce, I mean, how common or
1: uncommon, because I hear instance of these, but again, it's like anecdotal. You don't really know. And, you know, in reference to the whole industry, how prevalent it is of shippers intentionally like loading trucks, they know will likely have a claim on the other end. Right. Um, How often do you see somebody doing that as like a matter of practice? And then like, how does that play out? Does that, I mean, do you guys see that?
2: Yeah, we do. And we have. And we've had people that, you know, admit to having done it years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think it happens. Um, And we're never quick to jump to that conclusion. We're always wanting to look at at all the facts, hear all the parties out. Um, And and really, we don't even want to insinuate that that's that that it was in any way intentional. But um, but but ultimately, you know, bad product being being loaded um, and and trying to be uh, put off onto the truck is it's a fact of life in the produce industry. I do think things have gotten more uh, sophisticated, um, less uh, like the wild west um, from when I from when I started. So I think things are getting better in that regard. We never jumped to that conclusion, but yeah, I mean, it can
0: happen. I want to I'm going to explain this for any anyone listening or watching that doesn't understand what we're saying. So for example, you know it could be uh, let's say there's a, a lettuce broker or like a lettuce grower, whatever, and they have spoiled rotten whatever some kind of damaged lettuce and they intentionally try to load it on the truck without that being caught with the full intent of filing a claim on the carrier's insurance company saying that it's the carrier's fault that it showed up spoiled or rotten the same thing would be like insurance fraud if somebody um you know, got in an accident in their car and it was their fault. And then they tried and make a false claim that, you know, they hit a deer or, you know, it was a hit and run or whatever. Right. Like they're basically trying to, to, to use somebody else's insurance to pay for something that was their own fault or their own responsibility. So uh, I've seen it happen. It's definitely not the majority of claims that I see, but there are, there's been enough of them that it realistically does happen. That's why I'm, I was, Curious to hear your answer there too, Doug, that you guys do see it and you you are dealing with it. Obvious uh, question, get, how, how to explain that?
1: How do they catch those? How do they catch the intent? Because I feel like the reason it was prevalent, you know, back in the day when I started in the industry was like it was hard to catch. Like, I mean, from the shipper's point of view, if you're supposed to ship the product out after you've had it on hand for whatever, a day or two, and for some reason, your inventory didn't get cycled right or didn't go in the truck right, and this pallet's been sitting there for four days, right, or five days instead of the two, it gets snuck on this truck and you know it expires in transit, right? Like the how- ones
0: I've seen are like where a the the truck, like the temperature recorder for the reefer unit shows no breach. So basically the, the temperature was maintained at its proper level according to the the bill of lading for the entire time pictures were taken, everything's done right by the carrier and the food still, or the product still comes off like frozen in some cases or uh, more so if it's, if it's supposed to be held at a cooler temperature and it was loaded hot, we'll see that kind of stuff too, where it's like, it doesn't matter how cold our trailer was. When you put a hot product on there, warm product on there, it's not, the reefer is not meant to cool your product down. It's meant to maintain it at a certain thing. So that, those are the ones that I've seen. Um, where the carrier's done everything right, they've been able to show everything properly and then the, their insurance company denies the claim. Um, Doug, what would you add to that? Does that seem like kind of what, you, what you've seen or is there other instances?
2: Yeah, um, well, I guess to, to your point, I mean, we're, we're looking, and it's, it's an important distinction, we're looking to the carrier to maintain uh, temperature con- air temperature control within the trailer. So in the rear of the trailer where the portable temperature recorder is, mm-hmm. uh, in the nose of the trailer where the, where the reefer sensors are. We're looking for that air to be properly temperature controlled, and, and looking to the to the carrier to take responsibility for that, not necessarily the pulp temperature of the product. So, if a claimant's going to need to do more than than show warm pulp temperature temperatures. Um, they're going to need to sh- show an absence of temperature control um, to, 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 to claim the carrier.
0: So let's, let's explain what pulping is, too, because you did make a good distinction, right? We're talking about the temperature of the air in the trailer, which is what the carrier has control over control of, versus right. the temperature of the actual product. So can you explain Barney level, Barney style, what pulping is and when it should be done? Yeah, pulping
2: is just the temperature of the product itself. So sticking a temperature probe within the apple um, mm-hmm. and uh, or between bags of, of salad um, and, and then getting getting the temperature of the product itself. So so like to, to Ben's point on, so the product is loaded. The question of is the shippers going to prove that the product was loaded in good condition and then arrived in poor condition.
1: So the onus was on the shipper to prove that it was in good condition at... Time exactly. of loading. Okay, got it. Not exactly. on the carrier. Once
2: once they prove that, then the burden shifts to the carrier to prove freedom from ne- from negligence and shipper air. Got it. So if it's a situation where it was old product, um, the carrier is going to have the shipper somehow going to have to prove that it, that it wasn't. That it wasn't. So they've got that that hurdle to overcome.
1: It's almost guilty until you're proven innocent in that scenario, right? The shipper is liable for until they can prove that they loaded it correctly and it wasn't negligible. They've got to do that. But well, okay. once
2: they do that, now now it shifts to the carrier where they've got to prove freedom from negligence. And the way they can prove freedom from negligence is to say, look, I maintained air temperature control in this in this mm-hmm. air in this trailer. I've got the reefer download showing that the temperatures were good in the nose of the trailer. I've got the portable showing temperatures were, were good in, in the rear of the trailer. And then if, if pulp temperatures are warm in spite of that, well then that, that would suggest that the carrier failed to load the product in good condition uh, with, with proper pre
0: So when is, so is the, I got two questions. Number one is the product pulped at loading. And the second part to that is how does a shipper prove them, prove them or yeah. How do they prove that everything they they did in the loading process was done correctly? So what is pumping done at the shipping side by them? And then how do they prove that? How do they prove it was put on there correctly?
2: Right, and that part of this is an answer carriers don't want to don't want to hear. But um, you know, when when the carrier signs the bill of lading clean, then at a minimum they're saying that they've got no firsthand knowledge or no awareness that that the product wasn't properly loaded, wasn't properly pre-cooled, wasn't properly boxed, stacked, braced, everything. Um, so, so the the carriers often in a position where they, they've got no way to disprove first hand knowledge of the shipper who's going to come forward its operating personality to come forward and say saying um, even if they don't have direct memory of that specific shipment they've got di- they've got direct first hand knowledge of the of their uh, of procedures their, yeah they their procedures the sop yeah. yeah exactly and and then usually they, they come forward also with a, with a loading sheet maybe with wher- warehouse cooling records so it, it it's the the shippers often in a very good position to, uh, to support that, that, that the product was in good condition, was loaded in, in good condition.
0: That's a good point too, for brokers to understand that, uh, you know, like you said, carriers don't want to hear that, but it's us as brokers being the intermediary, this is the kind of stuff that we need to be explained to carriers when, if they're going, say we've got a carrier that's never picked up at this facility before, never hauled for this customer of ours before, um, to understand that the the risk that they take if they just blindly sign something without understanding the the ramifications that it could potentially have down the road, so sorry. I think it's
2: important to recall though, that, you know, even if it's warm, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be a carrier claim because carrier comes back and shows, hey, I was we got freedom from negligence. I maintained the air contempt the air temperature in the trailer. Now, mm-hmm. now you could say. Well, the the pulp temperature of the product affects the temperature of the the air temperature within the trailer, which is obviously true. But the fact of the matter matter is that after the first couple hours, that heat any heat from the product should dissipate. Any, um, you know, just field, field heat from the product should dissipate. Any respiration heat it, uh, diminishes rapidly after 24 hours after harvest. So, even if in the first day of the trip uh, you've got some high temperatures as a result of, of high product um, or of warm product being loaded, you should see those temperatures normalize throughout the, the remainder of the trip. So, uh, you know, a carrier in most of the claims we, sh- we see should be o- able to overcome warm product if it was in fact loaded warm as as they're they're really speculating because they don't have first hand knowledge of that or they wouldn't have signed the bill of lading
0: clean yeah it's like if you put a warm bottle of water in the fridge it's going to be cold the next morning you know what i mean it's going to it is going to cool down so um, so question, I
1: mean, while we're on this topic, what are some best practices brokers can use to, like Nate pointed out, oversee the truck side, at the very least have some redundancies in there, right? I mean, what I'm hearing is, you know, making sure you ask the carrier before they're signing that bill clean to, at the very least, pulpit and to get some reference as to whether or not the temperature was accurate when they are taking possession of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that that's great if you
1: can, if you can. Get that, um, I,
2: you know. There's a lot of times I think the carrier just fails to maintain temperatures in the in the trailer, and mm-hmm. then they, they blame it on the on the warm pulp temperature at, at shipping point. I mean, we, that that that's a that's a fact uh, that it's it's kind of an easy thing to point to and say, hey, I wasn't allowed on the dock. I wasn't allowed to pulp it, um, so therefore you can't hold me because um, how do I know pulp temperatures weren't warm? But most of the time that arguments that arguments going to fail. I would say where you really would want to put your foot down if you're a carrier or a truck broker working with a with a carrier on a load is if all of a sudden you show up at um, at the, the scheduled um, loading time and the product's not ready. So they're hustling it in from the field and there's a chance that they, they maybe they, they cut some corners on the pre-cooling. Now, I wouldn't that would definitely be a situation where I would dig in as a carrier and say, no, we've got to get I've got to make sure we've got good, th- thorough, verified pulp temperatures. Before we're going to load this, uh, because uh, because you're late because this product's just coming in off the field.
0: So let's talk about when it gets to the receiver's end. Um, what is the the inspection process look like there? For um, is the receiver going to pulp the product there and um, re, you know record? Hey, this is the temperature of it. Um, is does the driver have any involvement in that? What does that process look like in a in a good like a best practice scenario.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess in the ideal situation that the product's going to be, going to be um, pulped by the receiver right away, verif- verified by the driver, probably initial right on the delivery receipt. Um, a USDA inspection would be called for um, while the product was still loaded on the truck. So you get the USDA pulp temperatures. Um, and then the receiver would also secure the The portable recorder, um, it's you know, if if it's not the portable recorder is somehow missing, then that needs to be noted on the on the delivery receipt. But if it's there, presumably it is. Um, get the results of that, make copies, um, and ask the the uh, the carrier also get to get a copy of the uh, get a reefer download.
0: Um, you know, so you what. you brought up USDA inspections, and this is something that we haven't really touched on on the. I are just going to ask. And I would I would love to just for a few minutes explain what that is, how they're ordered, who who these inspectors are, where they're located and typically when this would happen. So a USDA inspection is not. So it's an inspection that's done by the USDA. Right. So they are a third party to the as well in this situation. Um, And it's not ordered on every load. It's ordered if. There's a dispute, or if there's an issue on something, or a potential claim, um, can you elaborate on that? Just kind of just give a, a one-on-one level explanation on what the USDA inspection what? is. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, USC inspection takes a snapshot of the, of the product um, at, that, at that time. So the inspector comes in, and the, I guess the beauty of it is it's all standardized. So they'll um, they'll be able to put in a number and say this product was affected with you know, 17% bruising, uh, 2% decay, 3% overripe, whatever the case may be. They'll show the number of the cartons that were available for inspection. They'll show the pulp temperatures. And that's all considered disinterested evidence. Um, so objective evidence, as opposed to the to the uh, um, the receiver's uh, quality, you know, QA people, uh, they may do just as good or just as thorough of a job, but that's not as um, that's not considered
0: disinterested evidence because so they it, have an in- a direct interest in yes, exactly, exactly. okay. And these um, the inspectors are located in um, you know they they cover a certain territory essentially, right? So you probably a metro area has probably got inspectors that'll handle. Um, and you know, if an inspections ordered, you have this team is going to handle this region. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I got some questions from again, like lower level stuff. So, okay, truck arrives. We've got a dispute right now. We're calling to order the USDA. How long does that typically take? And who's paying for the carrier's time and the detention of the carrier? Is that worked? Before I go too far down and ask you a bunch more questions, sure. how does that sure. time frame play out first? <laughs> Yeah.
2: Um, well, I, I, one thing I'd say is carriers who, if you're hauling fresh fresh produce, they need to understand that the, the um, packer regulations, so Perishable Agricultural Commodities Act, those regulations provide, they, they allow um, that receiver eight hours to decide whether or not they're going to reject the product back to the shipper. So... When carriers are hauling fresh produce, they need to understand that the, the custom and practice, the law of mm-hmm. the, of the industry, it, some, some delay is, is a part of that process and really need to factor that into, you know, when
1: they're the pricing. So- of- And I want to pause that right there because Nate and I have talked about this a lot. I talk a lot about this to clients and things when we're talking about margin related to different things we ship, right? I mean, even as it relates to like, we'll say like steel versus, you know, like a barrier or something, like there's way higher margin typically in produce than there is in just like, I'd say, I don't want to say like a normal commodity, but a commodity that isn't as perishable, right? And- there's usually, like you said, built-in margin. Like if you look at a company's books, like there's tend to be higher margin and the carriers tend to get paid higher for those. And what you're pointing out is there's a reason for that. That reason is when they release, when they arrive at that, that receiver, if that receiver wants to hold them for up to eight hours, that cost, if I understand it, is coming out of the carrier's pocket when and if that does occur. Correct? Yeah. It's like an industry standard. Like this is just part of the way it is regulated. If you're accepting a fresh produce, you're subject to this regulation.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the the, the regulation never spoke, does not speak directly to carriers, but it Mm -hmm. just kind of follows logically. So in our in our transportation guidelines, we talk when we start start talking about detention or warehousing fees um, accruing, it's after that initial eight hour period. Now, but that's by default. You could, of course, before mm-hmm. you took the hall, you could agree to something completely different. But if parties don't agree to anything there and they come to Blue Book, look at our transportation guidelines. That's what they're going to provide.
0: So then um, let's say uh, the inspection is ordered. So the receiver is going to order the inspection. What's an expected Waiting time. So I'm going to call them right now. How long should I expect until they will arrive? And I'm sure it depends on where you are. Is it within a matter of hours, um, half a day? Right.
2: You know, they tend to work early in the morning. So, like, real early to like the seems like we, we, most of the inspections we see are, you know, six (laughs) of two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's about right. So, you know, and if you're in a major metropolitan area, you might be able to, and there may be, the guy that he may be on, an inspector might be on, on site right then. So you might not have to to wait at all. I, you know, a point of a confusion sometimes we get is that um, you can, that the receiver can accept the load under protest and then, and then just call. So they get the, get the carrier out of there, unload their product and then the inspection can come in the next day. Um, otherwise it's a matter of holding the truck and you're probably talking next day. If you get into weekends or, or holidays, you know, can really become problematic.
0: Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's a, that's a good explanation. I know we've talked about it before. I've, I've definitely had a little bit of experience with it, but folks that are new into produce probably aren't even aware that um, you know, the role that the USDA can play in those kind of situations. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, there's um, a
1: lot right there. I mean, like just realize, I mean, it definitely operates different than a lot of your other things you're probably shipping if this is a new industry for you, right? And these are things you need to plan for, take into account and make sure they're also priced into it, right? To your point, you know what I mean? Like if the carrier is expecting that that is the standard, the broker needs to be aware of that as well and treat the carrier as such so that, you know, everybody's in line with what you pointed out, are the standards of that industry.
0: So I wanna ask a, a kind of a random question here. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier. Have you guys ever had um, a dispute brought to your attention that you just scratched your head and you're like, we can't figure out what went wrong here. Like everybody did everything right, everything looks right, but somehow the the product is damaged. Have you ever ran across something like that? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, we end up scratching our heads every,
2: you know, every day. Um, but I, usually, there there are some kind of. Sometimes, when you really can't, there there are. Um, one party ultimately bears the burden of proof at the end of it. So, I, you know, with the USDA, for instance, if the carrier provided normal transportation and the product failed to make good arrival, then then that's a breach by the by the the. Seller and the receiver can take a deduction of its damages from the seller's invoice. So there's usually some, you know, if nothing can be proved, the the, the burden of proof will, will will point the the outcome of the claim one direction. Or
0: the other. Gotcha. So there is kind of like a hey, when you hit a dead end, it ultimately is going to fall on this party. Um, but so that that's that's interesting. I was curious if that was more frequent. Um, I definitely wouldn't have thought it was an everyday thing, but I guess that makes sense. It, it, well, it, again, your role is not to, bl- you know, assign blame or responsibility to somebody. It's to give a, to give a, a third party neutral um, analysis of the situation. And so kind of I have a question
1: you, as it relates to that. If we looked at a big pie chart, right. Of all of the claims that you guys see on a yearly basis, which percentage do you think falls on the shipper? And what do you think falls on the carrier? If you had a, oh, you know, <laughs>
2: You know, I'm kind of in a one claim at a time and I can't say I've ever stepped back and, look, and looked at it um, quite that way.
1: Just curious. And again, nothing might come to mind. But I, as I'm thinking through this, I'm like, I wonder where like the majority of them tend you to fall. Maybe there there isn't a majority.
2: The point that I think that raises is a lot of times we'll look at it and say it was we call it a bad, bad situation. It looks like the, it looks like the seller didn't didn't uh, load good product. And and it looks like the the carrier didn't maintain normal transportation conditions in route either. Um, So yeah, actually that that's probably that would be a significant chunk chunk of the pie chart.
0: Okay, so fault on both parties, right? And And I've even seen it. And I brought this up in a previous episode. We had a situation where shipper, broker, and carrier all did something to you know all had some kind of fault in it. So it was like bad, bad, bad. Right? It was like Broker, broker sent the wrong, sent the wrong in, kind right? of truck carrier, I mean, carrier loaded a, ref- a cooled a temperature controlled product on a dry van and then the carrier accepted it on their dry van knowing it had to be ref- refrigerated <laughs> so everybody kind of had ownership in it and uh, but again no one ever wants to point a finger and say like that's not my fault that's so-and-so's fault it's like but at the end of the day um it we all could have. Had done something to prevent that from happening. So, um, so yeah, like bad, bad, bad in that situation. Yeah.
2: and there's there's so there's a lot of issues there because you know carriers are not you know when when they when they've got to prove freedom from negligence or they're liable for the claim that doesn't permit a whole what's called contributory negligence that that doesn't give them. Much of an out to say um, the seller. The seller was partly responsible here too because if the seller shows it was loaded in good condition and, and in poor condition at destination, well now I as the carrier got to prove freedom from negligence or I'm liable. So contributory negligence, you know, that's kind of a tough, a tough concept. Um, you know, carriers can't can't rely on that. They're going to get arguments to that to counter that. But at the same time, pack a precedents going to say, hey carrier, you' or hey shipper you're you're warranting when you load product on that conveyance that it's going to hold up and arrive without abnormal deterioration at the contract destination on whatever conveyance you put it on so if you put it on a, a dry van or something that's not temperature controlled um, you're responsible for that product to make good arrival at destination if it doesn't you you you've got responsibility so in that scenario either party could could potentially be 100 percent liable depending on what the injured party the receiver could could choose to go Uh, you know, seek full reliable, um, full liability from either, um, from either party and then leave it to that other party to go back and seek contribution from the other. So very, very messy situation. And in in that scenario, it's hard for me to believe a shipper would take its hard earned product, the product it grew packaged, um, food safety certified, and, and put it on a, on a conveyance without temperature control. I, I, you know. So you'd that, probably assume a, I mean
0: I don't want to speculate, but you'd probably assume that the it was a product that they knew whether or not it was on the right trailer right. wasn't gonna make right. it wasn't gonna arrive in good uh, good standing. So interesting. interesting. That's that's uh it's a good uh it's a good take on it. Um Ben, anything else you wanna pick Doug's brain on here on this topic before we get into the QA? I've learned a lot. I'm honestly kind of processing a lot of this. Um <laughs>
1: The last part kind of blew my mind, too, that it relates to like the person receiving the product can choose to go at one or the other. And then it's up to them to then maybe seek retribution, not retribution, but um, compensation or I don't even know what the term would you would use then. Um, yeah, damages of the other party. Damages yeah, damages right. off the other party. That's really yep. fascinating. I mean, I've been involved in claims, none produce, um, some very messy, but that, that was I learned a lot. That was that was really good, actually.
0: Yep. Well, good stuff. We got three three questions here, but first, I'm going to give a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions mm-hmm. Group. Lean is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that lean has to offer your freight brokerage or agency, visit them online at www.leangroup.com. That's L-E-A-N group.com. Okay. First question here. What tools can I use to complete a large bid? Um, I actually get asked this. I've got to ask this question quite a bit, Ben. Um, so, you know, you know, someone has maybe like a mini bid and they're just going to quote like 10 lanes. They just pretty much do them all manually. But if someone's got like 2000 lanes, they want to know what can I use? Um, there's a couple of thoughts I have on this. Number one, you probably don't want to bid all of them because they're probably not a good fit for you. And imagine if you somehow were awarded 2000 lanes and you don't have the ability or the capacity uh, to do it. But let's say you've got a handful and you want to get some, some you know maybe you got 50 or 60 and you want to get some rough estimate start starting pricing to you know kind of start with. There are um bulk rating abilities in some of the online load boards. So like DAT you can upload a spreadsheet. Um and it just it requires you know origin destination, equipment type, stuff like that. And it'll spit out like their median price for each of those lanes. Um, The downside there is you don't have all of the information. So if you just run one single lane into a historical data or rating tool, you get a lot of insight. You can see how it's fluctuated over the last 12 months, how it's done the last three days, the last seven days. You can kind of get that high and low and then that median amount. Um, you're not going to get that with a bulk rating tool. So just kind of keep that in mind. But there are, there are tools to fill out spreadsheets and upload that stuff in bulk. Uh, Is there anything else that you're aware of, Ben, that you can use outside of those? I know some brokerages that have proprietary software
1: that they've developed that helps with this. Um, I've used them. I've used them with clients. I'd say the one big thing that they do a little bit different that these tools help with is to pull different, they call them like levers, right? Um, Where they're like, hey, you know, these lanes tend to be, if this is the median, we feel like we're above this for certain seasons. And then they'll like, They don't go above it for the whole year. So let's just say, you know, if the average rate per mile is whatever, $2.25 for the whole year, they'll look at the curve through the whole year. And as long as the majority of the year they're running at a profit, like they'll bid like competitively on those. yeah. And that's where you'll see with like large companies, like you might be two, three months of a year, you're literally running the same load for a loss, but the other, you know, nine to 10 months out of the year you're profitable so it makes sense to bid those where they're not profitable all year and you can win some of those lanes and the software allows you to pick and choose some of those lanes to do that with um because you're right like the first point i think is the more important one is it's not necessarily the tools like using dat's tool and being uploading that the things you want to look for are the lanes that are a fit for your brokerage what you can support from your brokerages point of view first off And I think not only are they a good fit for you, but also like, you know, what are you gonna do if you win them? I think is a really good question to ask. And also you wanna look at variables because bids usually have different types of freight in it. Like, are they first come first serve? Are all of these loads first come first serve? Are some of them by appointment? Are both ends by appointment? Are they multi-drop, right? And that's going to play into how you're going to quote them off of your median as well. So you don't necessarily just want to look at your average lane. You want to pay attention to the details in regards to whether they're by strict appointment or they're yeah. you
0: know open loading. They're so going to another thing, race. too, not to get too in-depth on bids, but what I really, really like the concept of is you first start off with a customer, you work some of their spot business. So it's, hey, I got this load here for this week or, you know, I got these little one offs. And then you get invited to the bid. You don't want to win everything right away. Get awarded a few lanes. You know, Spend your time analyzing the bid on those couple of lanes. And then once you're, you run that contract business and you've got some actual carriers that are used to running that business with you, and you're developing the carrier side of it, that's when you want to then go back for the next bid cycle and try to gain more lanes and more lanes. And that's kind of your path to go from... You know, no business to the spot business to a lot of contract business. It's it's in little bite sized pieces. You don't you don't go from zero to five hundred lanes overnight. It's just it's not. It's going to be overwhelming. You're going to under you're going to over promise and under deliver. Uh, yeah. All right, next question. What side jobs can I do as a freight broker until I grow my business? <laughs> I kind of laughed when I saw this one because I wanted to say, well, you can do anything, um, but. Then I thought about non-competes. And if you are a W2 employee who has a non-compete, don't go working for a competitor of that, of that broker, or anything that doesn't, you know, like for example, I, I've seen people that are like, yeah, you know, I haven't grown my book yet at you know XYZ logistics and I have a non-compete. So I'm gonna go consult for, you know, this company or that company. And it's like, well, you, you actually can't based on your non-compete. Um, but that, that aside, I would, if you do want to, I guess, a side hustle while you're trying to grow your business up. Maybe you're a licensed broker or an agent or something like that, and you're just not totally there yet, and you're not making the money. Uh, I'd recommend you do something in the industry that would, you know, it's going to help you to grow your business, right? And that could be some sort of consulting, or maybe you're, you're, maybe you're working as a dispatcher for uh, an asset based trucking company, or you know, something along the lines of logistics and transportation. that's going to help you grow your skill set. Um, I've never been asked this question before reading it off today. And it's, it's an interesting one, but, um, I don't know, drive Uber if you want, or DoorDash or, you know, I don't know.
1: Well, I'll tell you this. I used to run into this question a lot at one of my first sales jobs was everybody was like, well, I want to take a second job so that I can, you know, get my income up as I'm waiting to build up this book of business and that job. And the one thing that we noticed, I was there for a handful of years. One of my closest friends has been there probably close to 15, 20 years now. And I talked to him recently and he's like, still holds true that everybody we've seen split their energy into different things tends to not make it in the sales position. Meaning like they spread themselves thin and they're doing a little of this and a little of this and a little of this, and they tend to never put enough energy into the sales part of it and they just tend to not make it. I'm not saying that's true for everybody, it's just something I've seen in my career. Yep. And the advice I'd always given and I still do is like if this is what you're going to do, then do this and do it well and push harder here because you'll get there quicker and you'll get a better payoff and to your point what you're learning even from your mistakes makes you more valuable at this. And again, yeah, I think
0: you're going to you're going to win at what you focus on and if you're splitting your time like you said, you're not going to you're not going to hit your full potential because you could spend that time building your prospect list, right?
1: Yeah, and there's ton, the there's office. tons of yeah. like pickup business you could pick up here and there, a few loads here, a project here and there, like not all of it is business that's gonna go all year. And I think like you absolutely can go make money, you know, moving a few loads here and there, depending on what your structure is.
0: Yep. All right, last question. How can I prepare for an interview for a freight brokering job? Uh, well, this is gonna be similar to how do you prepare for a cold call with a customer? Uh, or your first first phone call with the customer in general. Um, I would recommend you do some research and fully understand what you're getting involved with. So what kind of job is it? Is it a sales job? Is it a dispatching job? Is it a accounting job? Um, you know, what I would also look at, you know, take a look at that brokerage. How long have they been in business? How big are they? You know, do they have something that they specialize in with their carrier base? Um do, what kind of training do they offer to their new folks? And what's, you know, what's the turnaround look like for um, folks that come in new to th- their positions in the company? And um, you know, what's a, you know, I, I guess what, what you would do is come up with a bunch of questions to ask and discussion points to have. So you have a very good, productive conversation in that interview. Um, I used to, you know, I, I used to always love doing job interviews when I, like when I was out of college and looking for jobs and whatnot Um, cause I, you know, not every single one is a company you're going to go work for, but I got to learn so much about companies I I never did before. And I had a lot of friends that were always so nervous for interviews and I was always super excited for them. So I guess just kind of change your, you know, have a little paradigm shift or change your mindset on what that is. It's not like you're going to get grilled by them, but more so, Hey, I get to go have a conversation and learn all about this company. It's the same way that a cold call should be like. Don't be afraid and worry to pick up the phone and be told no. Go in there excited to learn something new about this company. And hey, maybe you'll find out you're not a good fit to work with them. So good stuff. Uh, ben, anything else you'd add to that?
1: I, I mean, no, I think having questions, you want to be as prepared as they are. You should be asking almost as many questions as they're asking you. Um, and I think, you know, interviews, again, are like prospecting and that you're selling yourself, just like you're selling a company once you get the job. So. You know, I've always been of the impression that like, if there's one company you really want to work for, try to interview with three or four in the same industry that you don't care if you get the job with, because the bar's not as high, you're not as nervous. You can kind of go into it like, Hey, I still got four more lined up. And if I, you know, don't do so great, I'm not as nervous. And it's just practice. Right. Um, and then, yeah. you know, the more you do it, just like you pointed out, the better you get at it.
0: I like it. All right, let's take a look ahead at the football schedule this weekend. Doug, who's uh, who? the Spartans got on Saturday? It's the big one. Michigan,
2: Michigan State. Oh,
0: I love it. I love it. Where are they playing? Are, are they in uh, Ann Arbor or are they at yeah. home? It's a night game, which
2: is rare in the series for crowd control reasons. But So it's, it could be ugly, but it's uh, in Ann Arbor um, under the lights. Um, tw- Michigan's uh, 21 point uh, favorite which I was
0: gonna say it had to be a pretty big double digit spread there yeah yeah
2: that's outrageous for that series it, the games never seem to be decided by that much but who knows
0: well speaking of double digit spreads, the bills are hosting the Packers and they're favored by 11 and a half points and then Ben your Steelers are being Eagles. hosted by the Eagles on 11 point um, underdog going into that game so. Um, I I don't think the Steelers got a shot. No offense. I do think that the Eagles are going to cover 11 points there. So I
1: think they will as well.
0: Um, Bills though. um, I was a little nervous because double digit spreads scare me, but I just don't think the Packers have it this year. I think they're, um, I look at like, I look at the teams and the quarterbacks on those teams that green Bay has lost to this year. And it just, it blows my mind. They're losing to terrible teams. I mean, they're NFL teams, right? Any given Sunday, anyone can win, but they're just, they're not, they're not playing like the Packers we used to see. So I think, I think the Bills are going to have a nice like 14 point or more win over the Packers on Sunday night. Um, so yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah. Good stuff. Anything, uh, well, I guess, Doug. So, you know, for, for those who had not heard about you on a previous episode of ours, how can they get in touch with, um, with you or with Blue Book, what's the best way to to find you guys?
2: Yeah, just uh, you know, just Google uh, producebluebook.com. dot com, um, and uh, you know, you can, I can give you my my email d at bluebookservices and uh, you know, we're happy to talk anytime.
0: Perfect. And we have a uh, well, we're going to put a link in the podcast show notes in the YouTube description box for the uh, it's producebluebook.com com forward slash join today and that'll get you know so you click on that link and it'll take you right to the page to learn more about becoming a member of uh, Prose Pool book so well doug great having you on again we look forward to the third and culminating episode of this series with you later this year um we'll be doing that sometime in the next uh i think it's going to be early december we haven't locked down the date yet but we'll uh we'll keep everybody posted um ben any closing final thoughts here whether you believe you can or believe you can't you're right and until next time go bills that wraps up this episode of freight 360 check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode and make sure to visit us online at freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes videos blogs and more and make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips
1: and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the contact us form on our site and we'll see you next week.